that's what I'm trying to focus on. And so private equity in the case that in the cases I'm discussing are the very largest firms, the KKRs, Blackstones, Apollo, Carlisle, um, that are using heavy debt loads to acquire companies, um, make them more efficient, so they say, and then sell them within a relatively quick time frame, five to seven years. And so my argument is that this strategy actually adds a couple of very intense pressure points on the companies that are acquired. My argument is that while these deals benefit um, a small coterie of firms and executives, there really are a lot of other people, other stakeholders that can be hurt by them. Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Wealthion founder Adam Taggart. We talk frequently on this channel of the dangerous and worsening wealth gap between the rich and the rest of society. If as a regular individual investor, you feel the playing field of today's financial system is unfairly tilted away from your interests and towards those of the already wealthy, today's expert would say you're absolutely right. To delve into this topic more deeply, we sit down with Pulitzer Prize winning and New York Times bestselling investigative journalist Gretchen Morganson. Gretchen's renowned for her groundbreaking reporting on the financial markets with a particular focus on the way in which they are too often abused by Wall Street power players. Today, we'll discuss the key takeaways from her new book, These Are the Plunderers, How Private Equity Runs and Wrecks America, which was recently published and is already a Wall Street Journal bestseller. Gretchen, along with her co-author Joshua Rosner, exposed the world of private equity as insidious, claiming that a small cohort of elite financiers and their government enablers use excessive debt and dubious practices to undermine our nation's economy for their own enrichment. To learn how, let's hear from Gretchen herself. Gretchen, thanks so much for joining us today. Happy to be with you, Adam. Gretchen, it's a privilege. I'm super excited to dive into you in the details of your new book. Very quickly before I do, especially given your perch there in the, um, you know, the, the, the journalist, your journalist role, being an investigative journalist in Wall Street, having been steeped in that market for decades now, what's your current assessment of the global economy and financial markets? You know, we have enjoyed a tremendous run, of course, as you know, in the stock market, the overall stock market. We're just now starting to see some earnings weakness a little bit. Maybe the expectations weren't quite met um, at some of the biggest companies that have been driving this rally. So, but I think overall we're in pretty good shape. You now have economists arguing amongst themselves about whether we will have a recession at all or whether it will be something that would be, you know, um, a relatively soft landing. So I think we are enjoying um, a, a really good moment and have done so. We probably second half of the year will be looking at a little bit more turbulence and um, a, a few more 
of the unmet expectations, because as you well know, investors, when they get ahead of steam, you know, they really have high hopes for their companies that they've, um, you know, been um, uh, profiting in. And they just hope that that continues. Of course, these things never continue forever, mm-hmm. but we really had a pretty good run. So I'm uh, here to say I am not a doom and gloomer right now, but I do think people probably should ratchet back a little bit on their expectations. Okay. And of course, we're, we're talking there about the, the, the public financial markets. Um, your book is really on the private markets, right? Um, so let's zero in on private equity. Um, we, we have had a specialist on this channel not too long ago talk about the private equity markets, but I, I don't want to assume that every viewer here uh, watched that video. So if we could, could you just briefly define what the world of private equity is? Well, private equity, um, and particularly the firms that I focus on in the book, um, private equity was really is the the current iteration of what we used to call leveraged buyouts Mm -hmm. and what we used to call corporate raiders. Okay, so this sort of investment strategy came out of the 1980s. And um, we all know about the RGR Nabisco deal, which was uh, you know, described so well in Barbarians at the Gate. And so for the past 30 plus years, we have now seen many, many, many kinds of these deals. They've gotten bigger, they've gotten more impactful, and they're affecting many, many more stakeholders. And so that's what I'm trying to focus on. And so private equity in the case in the cases I'm discussing are the very largest firms the KKRs, Blackstones, Apollo, Carlisle, um, that are using heavy debt loads to acquire companies, um, make them more efficient, so they say, and then sell them within a relatively quick time frame, five to seven years. And so my argument is that this strategy actually adds a couple of very intense pressure points on the companies that are acquired. The first pressure point being the heavy debt load that is used to acquire the companies. And by the way, those debt loads and the expenses associated with them are paid by the company that's acquired. They're not paid by the firms that are doing the acquisition. So the company that's acquired has a new and very costly expense that it has to meet. And then, um, you know, you have, of course, the um, reaction to that new cost, how if you want to make a company more efficient and sell it within five to seven years, you're going to have to make some pretty radical changes. So what that often involves is job losses, job cuts, pension cuts. Um, cost uh, cuts that affect the quality of um, the goods and services being offered. And so my argument is that while these deals benefit um, a small coterie of firms and executives, there really are a lot of other people, other stakeholders that can be hurt by them. All right. Um, I, I think there was a line uh, in in the book, which is, um, we are all worse off because of private equity. And again, I'm assuming you're talking about kind of these really big behemoths that come in and, and kind of follow the script that you're talking about here. Um, so, okay, so, so it sounds a little bit like, you know, private equity 
the term private equity, at least in the way that you're writing about it in your book, really is it's a rebrand, right? It's yes. uh, it's like trying to call, you know, RJR Reynolds Altria at this point in time. Um, and uh, you know, it's still still a cigarette company. Um, here it's it's LBO just by a different name, right? right. Um, so let's 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 delve into those pressure points here. Um, and you you write a few about a few more in your book, but I think they're probably they they nest under those two really big ones that you you mentioned. So you talk about the heavy debt load. So obviously these companies are massive companies with big war chests. Are they putting up one hundred percent of the money themselves to make these acquisitions, or are they using other people's money in certain cases to do this? The big firms are using other people's money to the vast extent. Um, so they'll put up maybe one to 2% of their own capital to make the acquisition. And then what they do is they raise very large funds from public pension investors, institutional clients, endowments, entities like that, that give them money to invest and to put to work. And so the firm will take that money and then use it to acquire these companies. So it really is an other people's money game. And for many years, as you know, it generated outsized returns for those investors, for the pension funds, for the institutions and the endowments, et cetera. Now those returns are reverting to the mean. And so you have situations, I think there was a Wall Street Journal story just a week or so ago about this, um, where the pension funds are actually now losing money. These returns are now negative right. for the first time. And so, yeah, you're really going to have to have people start to question this, I believe, in addition to the other elements, the other pieces of the puzzle that we outline in the book about the harm that can be done by these companies um, in these acquisitions. Okay. And I'm curious, um, how much of this reversion to the mean is just mathematics, right? Where eventually you have to mean revert. <clears throat> or how much of it is due to um, the current hiking and, and tightening campaign of the Federal Reserve, which uh, maybe a better question is, is how much of the boom, or the salad days that private equity have enjoyed were due to ZERP, were due to you know interest rates being kept near all-time record lows and enabling the debt financing to occur because there was debt was so plentiful and so cheap? Such a great question and really, really important. Yes, I mean, I would say ZERP is the key piece of the puzzle. And that is an explanation for so much of what private equity has done over the recent years and also for the boom in the field. Um, but yes, so now we have rising interest rates Adam, and we now are starting to see more bankruptcies because these companies raise debt that is floating rate debt. They do not raise fixed rate debt. And so as rates have gone up this year, pretty dramatically, their costs are rising dramatically as well. Um, I think S&P had a recent report out about um, this year, there are more bankruptcies. We're on track for more bankruptcies among private equity companies than we have seen since 2013. So yes, rising interest rates are a huge negative for these companies. But so I would say, um, it's almost as though the business model really requires almost perfection 
in a certain, you know, uh, piece, pieces of the puzzle just have to fall into place, one being these low interest rates. But you also, it, it's interesting to think about the trajectory of the 30 plus years that these buyouts have been dominating. So back in the 80s, when you had the RGR deal, when you had other acquisitions, we were coming off a really, really negative period for stock prices. And the valuations were extremely low. In fact, mm -hmm. the companies were undervalued. And so it and, made and, sense. And I, sorry, sorry to interrupt, yeah. but, but I'm wondering, maybe part of that was because at the beginning of the 80s, interest rates were super sky high. So cost of capital was bananas high, right? And that caused Wall Street to you know, heavily discount these, these companies. So again, just underscoring the importance that interest rates play in all this. Absolutely. Great point. And so you had the, these really terrible valuations in the stock market. Uh, you know, you're too young to remember, but Business Week had a cover story, Death of Equities. And, you know, I don't know, in the 70s, it, you know, it, it was all over for the equity market. Mm -hmm. Right. And so during the 80s, when these um, takeovers started to occur, there was really a variation between value and you know real value and market value and so they were capitalizing on that arbitrage and they were shrewd and they were smart and the debt loads that they put onto these things could be covered because of that mispriced value that the public stock markets put on it well we don't really probably see that now we have not been in a tremendous bear market as we were in the uh, 70s. Uh, and so you don't have the valuation um, variation that you did then to make up for some of the costs that were associated with this business model. That's a big part of, I think, what's going on now. And they're not having um, as easy a time finding deals. And they're also, interestingly, not having as easy a time finding buyers at the end of the line. Now, when they take over companies and want to flip them five to seven years later, often they will sell them into the public markets uh, in an IPO. We, uh, you know, have had a couple of periods where the IPO market recently has not been receptive. And so that's been a difficult pressure point for the firms as well. So, yes, the business model is being tested very severely right now, and it's going to be interesting to see how uh, the firms come out of it and whether there are you know pretty severe bankruptcies. All right. Um, you're just raising so many questions. I, I'm excited to delve into you with here. Uh, so you already, I think, answered one I was going to ask, which really is how does the private equity investor get their return? Um, is it more of a flip in general where they're 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 coming in, they're they're making the company more efficient, air quotes. Uh, and then they're selling it to another buyer who's excited to buy this quote unquote more efficient company. That's right. Uh, that's the argument. That's the thesis. And, you know, again, it requires there to be fat to be cut. It requires that there be inefficiencies that can be, um, you know, uh, avoided and gotten rid of. Um, and so, you know, is that the case? Well, I'm sure that many would say, yes, there are plenty of companies out there that need to be, you know, um, whipped into shape. But it is this short-termism that is another part of the um, unsustainable part of the business model, in my view, right? We've all talked about how short-termism in the stock market is bad, you know, the focus on the quarterly number and how the 
focus on that really takes um, executives' minds away from the you know true business at hand, which is growing the company, building the company, making shrewd acquisitions, et cetera. So the short-termism that is central to the private equity argument is, I think, also problematic. Now they can't, if they can't get out, then the pension investor, the institution that's invested in it, then they'll start to feel the pain of the business model. Um, we are starting to see that private equity firms are not getting out as easily. We're starting to see them sell to each other which mm -hmm. is a kind of a sure sign of, you know, top of market or end of kind of, you know, market peak type thing where you, and you'll even see in one case, you'll even see Apollo selling a company out of one of its funds and into another mm -hmm. of its funds, which raises all kinds of questions about who's doing the valuing. Exactly, someone, it's just a shell game, yeah. Is someone getting a good price or is someone paying a higher price than they ought to? So you're starting to see this uh, difficulty of, of the exit strategy that private equity requires. And it will be very interesting to watch that in addition to the pressure of higher interest rates. Okay. Um, uh... All right. C correct me if I'm being a little too uh, overly dramatic here, um, but uh, the the way in which your book describes a lot of the behavior of these 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 big guys is is they they are raiders to a certain extent, right? They they, they come in um, and they, uh, they they load the companies up with debt, as you said. They have to dramatically cut costs. Um, back in the day, you know, you could find undervalued companies and this all worked actually pretty well right the 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 company's organic value that it was creating through cash flows would begin to pay down the debts and then you ended up with a company that was a lot more efficient the debts now under control it's very attractive for a new buyer fast forward to where we are today right where valuations have gotten crazy and i'm using the public markets as a benchmark for that but but right. there's correlation between public and private market valuations we look at things like the Buffett ratio, which is sort of a finger to the wind indicator of how well things are, whether things are fairly valued or not. And it's still up in nosebleed territory, right? So the problem is, is they used to buy these kind of diamonds in the rough with um, uh, with cheap debt. Now we're in a, in a point in time where they're buying overvalued companies with expensive debt, right? That doesn't work very well. So for that for that model to work still is you essentially have to find the, the patsy to sell to, right? You have to find the greater fool who's going to take this company off of your hands. And, and I want to take that question further in a second, but a quick one for you. I, I was just curious, are, are they siphoning profits out of these companies in the period in which they run them as well? So is, is, is the total return not just what they get at the end, but what they can kind of squeeze out of the company in the interim? Yes, and that's a really important point to make. So one of the um, typical strategies, I call the private equity, these big private equity firms, I call them, they're in the extraction business. So they extract, it's like ExxonMobil, right? They extract assets and wealth and cash from these companies during the time that they own them. Now, not all of those assets, cash, et cetera, go back to the investor, i.e. the pension fund. Sometimes 
uh, private equity firms charge pretty substantial fees that go to them, not their investors. And we can talk about that in a minute because the SEC has gone after them for those fees because they were not disclosed appropriately. Um, but yes, they a typical strategy, Adam, would be if you buy a nursing home company, as Carlisle did when it bought Manor Care, um, you can, and Manor Care owned all of its land underlying the nursing homes. And the nursing homes were very well kept. And that's why Manor Care was an attractive asset to buy. It wasn't going to require refurbishing, investments. So Carlisle walks in and then they decide to sell all of the underlying properties of the nursing homes. So they immediately get out everything that they invested. They, okay. they take that out when they do the transaction, the real estate transaction. But guess what happens? Manor Care now has to pay rent. Mm -hmm. Manor Care now has to pay rent for those all of those locations. And the company immediately started to lose money because there you go. All of a sudden, they have a cost they didn't have before. The asset that they had before is now gone. Somebody else owns it. And they're left with the costs associated with that transaction. Manor Care ended up going bankrupt. And that was a crucial reason why the company failed because of that transaction. Okay, now, so gonna, go oh, ahead. Sorry, go ahead. No, you continue. I was just going to say that the fees that I was talking about before that can be problematic are so called monitoring fees. So when a private equity firm comes and takes over a company, they will, generally speaking, install people on the board of that company to make sure that it's being run properly so they can keep eyes and ears on it. Um, they will also, uh, they had in the past been taking out what's called monitoring fees for the, um, you know, sort of management advice and monitoring that they were giving the companies as they turned them around. But what it was interesting was the SEC found that the companies would typically um, structure the, the monitoring fees for a 10-year contract. And so if the company was sold within five years, for example, the remaining five years of the It'd monitoring fees had to be paid by the company to close the contract to end to to make the deal work okay so 5 years of fees for work that no one was doing so that's the kind of thing that i'm talking about about being an extraction business extracting the wealth of the companies in that case they also can take pensions and uh, you know do they can sell the pensions off to someone else. Um, that's the kinds of things that I think create the biggest problems for workers in these companies and really need to be examined. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.
Okay. So I just want to remind folks that we're talking about the worst of the abuses in this space, but yeah. they're they're not insignificant. In other words, this is we're not talking about a, a tiny fraction of transactions. You're saying the biggest players in the space have a history of these types of deals. So um, what I keep thinking when I hear you describe all this, Gretchen, is it's it's sort of a hollowing out of the company, right? In terms of its value, its value. You're just mining, you're extracting, to use your word, that the value out, and um, so I was sort of I asked that question about what you know whether they were able to do this in the interim before they sell it because it sounds like it's true that there are a lot of ways they can sort of structure these deals with a private equity firm which which kind of at the end of the day is sort of an intermediary here between the right. providers of capital and the the employees and the company itself. If it doesn't sell for a phenomenal multiple at the end, it still might work out well for the private equity firm because they're able to kind of extract all this you know, value along the way. And of course, if it does sell, you know, they, they pocket a lot of money. Um, so I, I kind of go back to this sort of, you, you, you know, it helps to find the patsy at the end of the day, right? Like, like when they were starting, you were selling a company that really was kind of right-sized and made much more efficient. Today, it sounds like it's much more of sort of a hollowed out husk and I'm sure there's a lot of accounting gimmickry and stuff to try to show, oh, well, on these key metrics, we've made the company better over the past 10 years, and to try to sell it on to somebody else. Who do they usually sell these things to when times are good, at least? I, I know you mentioned now they're kind of having trouble, but but when times are good, who who is the buyer of a private equity firm? Is it the public markets? Is it another private buyer? Is it a mixture? It's yeah, it's a mixture. So traditionally, they would be able to IPO these um, companies uh, into the public market. They would often maintain their role, um, you know, uh, with people on the board from the private equity firm. The private equity firm would would keep holding a stake in the company. But yes, you can issue public stock for the, you know, in a new IPO and get out that way. Um, then you also had corporations that were would make be ma making acquisitions that were strategic that worked for the you know companies that they had that would be, would have been additive for those companies if they made the acquisition so it's generally speaking a mix um, in recent years it has become selling to other private equity firms and that's kind of another indication of the that we're in the late stages Stage, yeah. of what was a very fruitful um, strategy for many years, but is becoming a little trickier. All right. So I want to I want to finish this topic and then move to another complementary one because um, I'm trying to build a, a, a bigger understanding here of, of kind of how they got away with all this for so long. Um, so uh, you know what's made it harder for them to or, or why they're they're now selling to more private buyers is because the the, the public IPO window has has you know closed for a good while during COVID and whatnot, and still not back to where it was. And this is sort of where I talk about the patsy, right? Where um, you can you can quote unquote kind of put lipstick on the pig, uh, and then sell that to the public markets because in many cases the public markets can be less discerning than you know really sophisticated private buyers. And I live out here. In the San Francisco Bay Area, I spent a good chunk of my career working in Silicon Valley, and I became pretty jaded with how Silicon Valley, over my tenure there the past couple of decades, really, to me, seemed to sort of metastasize from a, a real generator of, of, of world-changing innovation to a, let's come up with the idea of the week, let's overhype it, 
let's get our you know other portfolio companies to be its first clients to show some right. really great sales growth off the bat and then let's just ipo that thing and dump it on the retail market and if it's ever going to be profitable that's their problem to figure out right, right. so is it is there a similar element there with private equity to date where it was like let's get this thing all gussied up after we've extracted as much as we can from it and let's find some rube to dump the thing on for the multiple we want then we walk away rich and if this husk shrivels and dies after we've sold it, well, that's their problem. Absolutely, Adam. That's a, a, a winning strategy, has been a winning strategy for them. And, you know, as you say, just come up with the deal of the week or whatever, or the idea of the week as they did in, in Silicon Valley. You know, a very interesting sort of wrench um, was thrown into that idea, though, by um, a federal judge in New York called Jed Rakoff. Jed Rakoff is in the Southern District of New York, and he gets a lot of very interesting cases, but he was presiding over a case involving the bankruptcy of a private equity-owned retailer. And what he ruled in this case was, this was a situation where the retailer was sold, but it was sold to an entity that was going to put a lot of debt onto it. The company then failed because of the heavy debt load. And so there was a squabble and a bankruptcy. Okay. So the interesting piece of the Jed Rakoff ruling was that he said, and this really scared the living daylights out of the private equity industry. He said that the directors of the retailer had an obligation to make sure that the court, that the structure, the financial structure of the company would be sustainable going forward. So it was not going to just be that you get the highest price for the company. That was no longer going to be the litmus test for him. For him, he said, you are going to have to at least examine the capital structure to make sure that this company can survive. And if it is heavily leveraged with debt and it can't survive, then that's on you. And that was a really enlightened approach, I thought, to looking at transactions like these and acquisitions and dispositions of companies. If the board is suddenly on the hook for making sure that the buyer is not going to wreck the company with a capital structure that makes it too hard to survive, then they will be on the hook. I thought that was very interesting. That is really interesting. Um, and I love the spirit behind it, right? Which is, hey, let's let's prevent these patently unsustainable deals from getting done just to let these guys escape with their riches. Right. Um, of course, it, 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 it raises the question, okay, well, who determines whether the model is sustainable or not? And I started my career on Wall Street, uh, Gretchen, and long enough to know that you, know, you, can, you can hire an investment bank to come up with whatever, really, whatever opinion you want, right? <laughs> yes. So is, will this just be sort of a passing of the football or, or will you think actually some real you know, you know it's a great question. Nothing has changed. Okay. That ruling was a couple of years ago. And I thought, Eureka, we're actually going to have people start to think about the capital structure of the company after the acquisition. No, nobody's doing it. No other judge ruled on it. Nothing has happened. Nothing has changed. So um, we haven't even gotten to the point where you hire somebody to say one plus one equals three. Um, so it just was an interesting moment where the accountability um, right. problem here, the agency problem here was addressed. Yeah, it's, it is showing. I mean, maybe maybe it's glacial at first, but a change in sentiment that, hey, maybe we're just not going to let these guys get away with it. And 
You also talked, so private equity is kind of famous for the two and 20, right? Uh, yes. And uh, you mentioned that there has been some pushback uh, on, on that model. Um, anything specific or notable to talk about or just people kind of challenging like, you know, why are we paying you such hefty fees through, you know, through all this if you're going to make all this money on the back end? Well, I think, you know, it's changing. And I think the FT just had a story about how uh, private equity firms are being forced to add sweeteners to the deals for their investors. So I think you're starting to see people push back on that. I mean, I think two and 20 um, is not paid by everyone. If you're a big, you know, CalPERS or someone like that, you probably can, you can negotiate better, it down. You can get a better deal, um, particularly on the two part. Um, but, you know, it is very expensive. The other thing that people have to understand is that it is extremely opaque. You do not know what you own. You uh, certainly don't have a sense of um, when you can get out of the companies. You know, they do have a long hold period. The valuations are extremely kind of... Uh, uh, mark to wherever you want to mark them, okay? Yeah. And you're starting to see more concern about that as well, Adam, um, where you have a public market valuation of a similar company that is drastically different from the valuation the private equity firm assigns to the similar company that it has in its portfolio. And you say, wow, wait, how can you value it twice what the public market says that kind of a company is worth. So I think you're starting to get questions from investors about these issues, mm -hmm. uh, but we're really in early days. Yeah, and so uh, private equity companies are, they're not beholden to as stringent uh, financial reporting requirements as public very, companies are shaking your head or something. Yeah, okay, very, very few. few rules. They do not, and SEC is starting to get religion on this. They want more disclosures. They want more clarity. Um, you know, investors should have been asking for this years ago, but uh, the SEC is starting to put together new rules that would require more disclosure from these firms. Okay. Um, so I have an opinion, and I'm very curious to hear your perspective because you're so much more steeped in this than I am, but is um, I was interviewing Dan Ariely, who's a prominent behavioral economist uh, the other week, and I, I, I'm fascinated by that field of study. Um, and we talked about how human beings, just being human, there's kind of two ways to change your behavior. You're, you, you project forward proactively and say, well, if I keep doing this, it's probably going to have that result. I should change my behavior today. Almost nobody does that. Um, you only change when the pain of continuing the status quo becomes greater than the pain of changing. So usually you just slam head first into issues. And then when the dust settles, you say, okay, I don't want to do that again. That really hurt, right? And so it seems to me that my, my opinion is that a lot of these changes or reforms, improvements that we would hope are coming down the road, probably very few of them are going to be made, you know, by clear thinking and we just come up with a better rule set, it's going to come with some big injuries, you know, some big, big investors getting hurt or some big swath of companies going under and really injuring the labor force or, or something like that. It's probably going to take uh, some real crisis to really get the attention to make the big changes. Do, do you share that opinion or are you maybe a little more hopeful? 
Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, I went into the 2008 mortgage crisis believing that this was going to be such a seismic catastrophe that there would be genuine reforms and there would be hell to pay, okay? There would be accountability. People would go to jail for running these operations that were really so abusive. Um, I just felt that that was such an enormous uh, tragedy for so many people. I mean, you know, people's furniture on the curb in front of their homes, uh, people's children who could no longer go to the same school they were in because they had to move or live in their cars. I mean, we're talking real harm, genuine harm. And nothing really changed. Nobody of any you know importance went to jail. Some people paid some enormous fines. And by the way, the people that paid those were the shareholders. They were not the people who actually, you know, did uh, the, the crime, quote unquote. So after that incident, I have a lot of doubts about anything that is going to have real change, affect real change, because that was, again, such a big deal. And it didn't generate the kind of response that I felt it it ought to have. And certainly there was very little accountability involved. So I'm I'm having a hard time believing that there is going to be any accountability here. I, of course, am always hopeful. The reason I do what I do is to shed light on things and the idea that there will be change. So I am not a cynic. I do not go around thinking, oh, nothing will ever change because the nature of my work is to hope that people will be educated and therefore change behavior. But I'm just kind of doubtful given the experience in 2008. All right. So you're, 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 you're pretty much reinforcing my opinion. I was holding out a little bit of hope that I was missing something that was, uh, you know, a little more optimistic, but I appreciate that. And, and I do want to just take a moment and, and really express my extreme gratitude for your work, Gretchen. Um, I'm glad that it has been as recognized as it is, but it's so important. And as they say, sunlight's the best disinfectant. The way that we're going to get through this is really by just putting the practices that don't serve us clearly on the table in whatever way we can to get you know, the, the, the ecosystem to look at them and say, you know what, that's actually not the best way to do it. We need to start doing something differently. Like I said, the, the pessimist or maybe just the realist in me thinks it's probably going to be because we get our hands burned enough times that we finally say, okay, we got to start changing our behavior here. But, you know, as they say, when in a crisis, the solutions that get implemented are the ones that are already on the table. By the work you're doing, you're really putting the right thinking on the table so that hopefully when we need to make, you know, drastic decisions in the future, we've got enough quality information to make a better decision than perhaps, you know, what we're pursuing right now. Well, I hope so. You know, the reason that I wanted to um, pursue this with my colleague, Josh, was to show people what happens to the uh, folks on the other side of the transaction table. I mean, we know all about Steve Schwarzman and we know all about um, David Rubenstein of Carlisle Group and Travis of KKR. We know about them. They are covered every day. They are lionized in the media. They give away billions and we know all about them. We do not know about the people who are on the other side of the table. And those in are people you wouldn't even begin to understand how they could be hurt. So there's an incident in the book that 
I think it really crystallized this for me was an aluminum smelter in uh, a, a very um, Im impoverished section of Missouri. And it was the only employer in town, 2,500 jobs relied on this. Um, Apollo came in, bought the smelter. They extracted and extracted and extracted. They put debt on it. They got three times their money out, but the company went bankrupt. And when it went bankrupt, School children in the town in Missouri didn't have books. School teachers didn't have insurance because the company was such a big part of the tax base in the town that when it went bankrupt, that tax base went away. There was also a wonderful anecdote of how, or telling anyway, anecdote of how the smelter, when it was having difficulty because it was so indebted, asked for a rate reduction from the utility commission in the state. And the utility commission finally granted the rate reduction, which meant that Apollo was paying less, but every other rate payer in Missouri paid more. Paid more. So these are the kinds of folks you don't know about, we don't know about who are on the other side of these transactions. Yeah. And again, like I said, I, I have a lot of respect and gratitude for that work because I think the the general people when you have these discussions they think of this as financial chicanery right so which it is in a lot of ways but it's money moving around and it's all paper and at the end of the day it, it happens in this fairyland world that's wall street and it's all funny money anyways right and it's not right. these are real companies making real things supporting real communities so you know cost cutting the workers get laid off or have their hours cut back or their pensions diminished um or you gave some great examples of the school and, and what's sad is is the reason why private equity goes after these companies like the smelter you're talking about is because they've got good cash flows. They've got good prospects, right? So they're taking what was a productive asset and then potentially kind of killing the golden goose, right? By just uh, uh, extracting too much from it. Um, the other thing that we haven't talked about quite yet is um, we talked about sort of the other people's money that goes into these things. A, a good source of it, a fairly substantial source of it are pensions, right? And so as you talk about, okay, these are sort of opaque uh, investments, uh, they're oftentimes kind of priced in a way you can't really trust uh, during the time in which you're holding it. And you may end up now increasingly find out that you're holding a real dud at the end of this year, right? Um, I've had people on the program who are pension reform experts who have, have you know, opened our eyes to the fact that we think as pensions being traditionally, you know, heavily loaded in bonds and other really safe uh, assets. And he said, in many cases now, that's just no longer the case anymore. And and they've been sold, particularly because of a ZERP environment, right, where it's so hard to get the rate of return that you in, in safe assets to meet your actuarial requirements, that the siren song of the bigger gains that you could get in private equity uh, really started persuading them. And a lot of these pension boards, you know, are staffed substantially by the workers that the pension is for, and they're not sophisticated investors. So they can pretty easily get razzle dazzled by a, a you know Wall Street type that's selling them this next great private equity thing. So another big bag holder are the pension firms. And I care much less about the firms themselves, but more about the people depending on those firms for their pensions. So there's a big risk there too, correct? Sure, totally true. The beneficiaries are the ones, of course, who will have to pay. And if, by the way, there is a pension problem, 
then the taxpayers can also be on the hook. For instance, if there's a corporate right. pension that goes bankrupt that used to be uh, backed by the PBGC, then that's taxpayers who end up picking up the slack there. But yeah, no, the pension funds and their predilection for private equity, you understood it in the years when the alpha was being created in a very big way. You understood it when the bond market, bonds because of low interest rates were just you know practically returning nothing. But um, it really is a strategy that has a circle of pain that's pretty large um, attached to it. And so it's been a pretty uh, perplexing um, thing for me to watch the pension funds dive in so deeply into this kind of business model that really is not sustainable. Um, the, the business model that actually, you know, fires the very people that the pension funds have as their beneficiaries. Okay, so in Missouri, the case of the smelter, the teachers were the ones who were hurt. So the teacher pension in Missouri, you know, so why are these people buying into uh, an investment concept that ends up hurting the very beneficiaries that they are serving? Yes, it did return higher rates before. It is no longer doing that. That's why I'm hopeful we're going to have kind of a reckoning um, among pension funds on this topic. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm right there with you. And it's a, it's a, it's a dangerous thing to say out loud, right? And, and I don't want the reckoning because I hate pension pensions and pensioners. Um, I, I, I want the reckoning for the the global reason where I just think we have a system that is metastasize for lack of a better word to really rewarding a very few inside power players and really damaging the average person in ways you and I have been discussing here um and if there is a reckoning I mean it's there's going to be a lot of pensioners that are hit really hard by it and, and to your point there will probably be a lot of tax fund tax fund sorry taxpayer funded bailouts of those pension funds which is unjust in and of itself too because a lot of those taxpayers do not have a pension <laughs> so when we look at you know people's readiness for retirement in this country, it's really scary. And for somebody who already has diminished prospects to have their taxes go up because they've got to bail out you know a pension that wasn't well managed, I mean that that's like a double injury there. Um, and Absolutely. I, I do I do worry about the sort of social uh, ire that that could really create if if we end up in that type of situation. And especially if you think about the bailout occurring, basically you're bailing out the entities that made these investments who made a tremendous amount of money making the investments, right. you know, extracting all those fees, et cetera. And you're really bailing them out, which is, um, you know, unfortunate. Unfortunate. And like you said earlier, you know, you, you expected there to be some pretty dramatic reform post global financial crisis. And we, we didn't really see the accountability we we're looking for. It still just blows my mind that Wall Street paid itself record bonuses in 2009. Right. Yeah. I mean, we right. see, and my point is we've seen this, this movie before, right. Where these, these guys who perpetrate it get to skate. Um, all right. So we haven't talked about one other key ingredient here to the success of this sort of bastardized model that you've been talking about, um, which is, uh, regulation you know you need to have regulators that are more or less kind of asleep at the wheel toothless in terms of what they can do in terms of enforcement or i don't know might be kind of complicit in the deal um you know somewhat captured uh by the the big moneyed interest on wall streets 
So talk for a moment about how the lack of regulatory enforcement has enabled this, this bad model. Well, certainly the lack of um, information and the disclosure problems associated with these uh, companies has been a problem that could have been addressed many years ago. Now, these are private companies, and that's why the, the disclosures are sparse. They don't have to file 10Qs and 10Ks and proxies. But you know, the government could have stepped in and said, look, this is a big business, pensions are involved, and so therefore we need to know more. So they did not do that. They did, They have only just started to talk about increasing the disclosure requirements for these entities. We also do not know the degree to which they are significantly, um, you know, uh, significantly impactful financial institutions who could, if they failed, you know, bring down the economy or mm -hmm. start a domino reaction. We don't know enough about th these firms. They are enormous. We know that, but we don't know about the interconnectedness that goes on in some of these financial entities. So government could have been far more, um, uh, you know, um, uh, vigilant about the information that's required. As far as other elements that have been lacking, um, the FTC and the DOJ have not gone after acquisitions of companies. They have not looked at it holistically in the sort of way that private equity rolls up small businesses, but as they roll them up, like physician practices, for example, as they roll up physician practices, they gain a market um, uh, hegemony that you really don't want to have. They gain market control, but you don't even realize it because it's kind of stealth. And these have been small companies. They didn't meet the threshold um, for antitrust action. So I think we need to start seeing a rethink of that. And maybe we are under Lena Khan at the FTC. Um, so you do need to have more examination of market control and how these companies are able to achieve it kind of under the radar. Okay. Um, you're making me think of one very specific instance uh, that I'd, I'd just I'd love to get your your quick thoughts on um, right on this topic is, you know, when you're talking about the, the roll-ups of the, the healthcare uh, companies, um, uh, we'll talk about Blackstone. Right. Uh, just as an example, um, they're buying up a massive amount of single family homes. Yes. Right. Of residential real estate. Right. Is, is, is that a concern that we basically have these deep pocketed institutional investors now coming in and owning an increasingly large share of our residential housing stock and essentially kind of out competing average people for an essential necessity of life? Yes. And of course, you have when Blackstone is bidding for properties in your town, that means that you are being outgunned by a, you know, fill in the number, a trillion dollar company who, who has, can borrow you know, at much lower rates than you, too. By absolutely. The way. And has, you know, <laughs> bottomless pockets. Um, and so, yes, it it is having the impact. And I have seen the studies about um, creating a, a situation where first time home buyers, for instance, cannot buy the home that they would have been able to buy years before when years before Blackstone and other big private equity firms got into the single family home industry. You also have the problem of these large landlords who have systems and, you know, are not 
um, responsive. I've written about this extensively, um, not necessarily about Blackstone alone, but others where the people who are in the homes can't reach them, can't get things fixed. Um, the grass isn't mowed, you know, the maintenance. You're just stuck done. in a bureaucracy, yeah. They're stuck in a bureaucracy. And again, it comes to the point where we're trying to make these things more efficient. So of course, yeah, it is more efficient if you don't cut the grass. It is more efficient if you don't improve, you know, fix the pipes or if you don't have heat in the winter. So it's this claim of efficiency, Adam, that really gets to me because how efficient is it, you know, and what cost is the efficiency coming? The cost to the to the uh, customers, the cost to the employees. There's a, a really just so damaging um, academic study about nursing homes that are taken over by private equity that residents in those nursing homes experience 10% greater mortality rates than residents of nursing homes owned by other companies, even for-profit companies, 10% mortality rates greater. That was 20,000 people who died in private equity owned nursing homes over this period this academic study did. That's the efficiencies they're talking about, lower staff, people not around to watch and, and care for these uh, residents. It's really this claim of efficiency without really discussing the cost of the efficiency. Yeah, it, it's it's a, a wolf in sheep's clothing story. And um, and sadly, I think you're you're kind of putting your finger directly on my my wound of uh, how much pain are we going to have to take before we start saying we as a society uh, and our legislators and everything and our regulators start saying, OK, look, we need something different and better, right? clearly 10% mortality rate in nursing homes is not enough pain, right? And so that's a little scary, which is, okay, if that's not enough pain, what is going to be, right? Right. All right. So um, we've been we've been taking a lot of uh, gut shots at the, the, the private equity punching bag here. Um, as I mentioned at the beginning of, of the interview, you know, we did have the CEO of a private equity firm on uh, not that long ago, you know, kind of educating us about how private equity works. And the benefits of, of, of the space, the potential benefits of the space, um, he totally acknowledged that there are a lot of transgressions that go on. Um, uh, I, I'm actually excited to get him back on the program at some point to let him react to you know kind of what you've laid out in your book. Um, but let me ask you this, Gretchen. Um, is the case with private equity that it's just a bad model? Or are we talking about a model that, that can be used for for shareholder and stakeholder good, it's just being abused by bad actors. I think the model would have to be tweaked or changed. Okay. So again, we go back to the pressure points of the heavy debt that's used to acquire the companies, which adds to the costs of running the companies and the short time frame. So I would argue that if you were a private equity firm who was going to put more of your own skin in the game, more of your own money at stake, and who had a longer time frame. So that would be an answer to these issues. And so companies that are doing that, private equity firms that are putting more of their own skin in the game and that are taking a longer view, I think, can absolutely do the right thing for a wide array of stakeholders. But it's this 
heavy leverage, short-termism that really contributes, I think, to the problem. And that business model, I think, is just unsustainable. Unsustainable. And so it's interesting here, and I, maybe let me let me try to end on something optimistic here, which is maybe we get the kind of reckoning that you think is deserved um, for the unsustainable models that are in the private equity world, right? And again, if 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 interest rates don't come down anytime soon, you know they're kind of losing their oxygen to be able right. to survive at at, at, at these uh, this cost of capital. So the, the, you know we may have a natural culling at this level anyways, right? right? right. Um, but, you know, that may that may send more of the spoils to the survivors in the private equity space who were doing things right. Um, one of the things that that CEO talked about um, uh, was that it was, you know, a big part of it was this, this longer term view, right? Where you're not stuck in the short termism of, oh, what do we get a goose this quarter to hit our right. earnings right. number, right? So you can really invest for the long haul, right? right? Um, he, what he also mentioned too, and I'd like to get your thoughts on this, is one of the things that he thought was sort of so exciting about the future of private equity is that it is large and growing from a capital standpoint, and that more and more companies are choosing to not go public because they just don't have to, right? And there are, yes, there's a lot more transparency that happens when you go public, which is good, but there's a lot of things, the short-termism and right, right. you know other other just friction that that aren't necessarily super helpful. And so in, in a company used as an example was SpaceX, mm -hmm. right? Where SpaceX requires a gargantuan amount of capital. It's the kind of company that absolutely had to go public a couple of decades right. ago to raise that much money. It didn't have to anymore because there's enough private wealth sloshing around that it was able to it's able to fund itself currently. And at some point, SpaceX is going to be beyond the R and D phase. And they're just going to be purely operating an incredibly profitable, uh, you know, space transport company yeah. at some point soon. It's going to be phenomenal. And, and the public market investors, the average, you know, mom and pop who buy, you know, a couple of shares of X, Y, or Z or whatever, they've missed out on that entirely because it never went public, right. Right? right? So, you know, there may be some real promise in the space for companies that are really run the right way. Uh, do, you, do you agree with any of that? Am I being too Pollyannish yeah. here? I think so. And I think that the idea of extending out your time horizon is crucial um, because that's the way you build the company. You're not just extracting the wealth out of it and then flipping it. Um, I, you know, I hesitate to uh, say that I am in favor of fewer public companies because how on earth are you know, investors going to be able to um, have a prosperous retirement if they can't access the public uh, equity markets. Those have been the biggest source of right. wealth for um, individual investors, right? And I would hate to shunt people into a, a strategy that is extremely expensive, very opaque, and, you know, um, uh, allows for some significant shenanigans. So, uh, you know, yes, I think that it can be workable and it, if changed in certain ways. Um, but I really hope that we don't have uh, a, a world where everybody is private and so therefore the individual investor can't participate in the wealth right. creation that does go on, you know, in the S&P 500, the Russell 2000, you know, whatever group of companies you want to talk about. Yeah, well, I think I think one key element here, which you probably mentioned, but just to underscore is, is I think no matter what markets you're investing in, more transparency never hurts, right? That's right, right. Yeah. 
All right. Well, look, and that's um, what you do. You bring transparency to it. So thank you for that. Well, thank you. I try. Look, I'm I'm just struggling to crawl along in your big footsteps that you've left. Oh my behind. gosh! So Don't thank be you. Um, let, let me ask you this, just in parting here. Um, uh, and I'm going to ask in a moment where folks can go get a copy of your book. Um, but you know, you've had a a long career with a laser focus on the excesses that have happened in Wall Street. Um, you covered deeply the mortgage crisis that led to the, you know, GFC. Um, that was the topic of your book, Reckless Endangerment, if I remember right. correctly. Um, and then you you talked about that uh, you 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 really revealed large conflicts of interests amongst the major brokerage houses. This was back earlier, coming out of the dot com era. Uh, I think that's what you got your Pulitzer for. Right. Um, uh, you know how. How uh, how bad does what you're seeing in today's world, not not just private equity, but just sort of in the the tenor and the context of how the financial system and Wall Street are being run right now, how do they compare to those errors? Are, are we in a materially better place or do you see a lot of concerns as you look around the landscape where you feel like we still have similar vulnerabilities like we had back in those extreme eras? Well, I think the good news, Adam, is that the banking system is much stronger than it was. And our mm -hmm. banks are doing pretty well. They're really, you know, they're not perfect, um, but they're in much better shape than they were and in much better shape than banks, you know, in other nations. So that's a really, really important positive that came out of the 2008 crisis. Um, I do think that we have systemically important financial institutions that we don't recognize because they're private, um, and we do need more sunlight on those, but at the moment, the banking system is pretty sound, um, which is a huge deal. But I think that you know investors need to have confidence that they know the regulators are on their side, that they're working diligently to protect them. And sometimes I just worry that we just don't have a strong enough system in place to protect individual investors from you know the uh, what I would consider to be questionable practices that Wall Street is known for, and Wall Street has always been known for. And so you just want to make sure that we do have those um, police cops on the beat who are making sure that investors can have confidence in the markets in this country. All right. Well, again, thank you so much for the work that you do, which really beat that drum that we need to have that type of of uh monitoring and and you know public focused outcome enforcement in these markets and hopefully with your drum and other people following your lead maybe and, you. and maybe, maybe eventually more and more of our legislatures will hear it and they'll start passing you know more more start giving the regulators more teeth and maybe a little bit more pressure to say hey buddy you know do your job here make real reform happen um, all right. So as we wrap up here, Gretchen, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much. If people want to read your book, your new book, where should they go? Well, you can buy it online. You can buy it at Barnes and Noble. You can buy it at Amazon, but go to your local bookstore and support your local bookstore if you can. Um, and if they don't have it, make them order it. <laughs> all right. Yeah. And I, I, guess a, I guess a book that's already a Wall Street bestseller, Wall Street uh, Journal bestseller is pretty much sold anywhere they sell books. So your local bookseller so. should be able to get I, it. I would hope so. And if not, let me know and I'll go and, uh, you know, pound on their heads. All right, great. And if folks want to follow you and your work above and beyond reading your book, what's the best way to do that? 
I am the um, uh, senior financial reporter in the investigations unit at NBC News. And so you can read my uh, work on NBCNews.com. There's no paywall. And I really would welcome as many readers as possible. Happy to interact. My email is at the bottom of every story. So you can find me. You are courageous to do that. Uh, and Gretchen, when we edit this, I'll put up the link to NBC News here on the screen. I'll also put it in the description below, folks, so you can know exactly where to go to follow her. Uh, Gretchen, this has just been wonderful. Thank you so much. Um, well, folks, thank you for your really, really thoughtful and incisive questions. Seriously, uh, you know, a lot of people just don't have the expertise that you do. So very grateful for that. Well, that's thank you. This has been a pleasure and a true joy. Thanks so much, Gretchen. Really appreciate it. We'll do it again. <laughs>